So for the last few weeks, we've been in sort of an informal series that you might not have been realizing that it was a series, because I didn't announce it or anything, but it is a series of messages over the last couple of months that have been geared toward preparing us to really take a look at, seriously take a look at, contemplative practice in our lives. And what we've been doing over the last few weeks is breaking down one by one, addressing and trying to break down the barriers that we naturally have, especially as modern Westerners, toward being able to embrace what Jesus is really showing us in terms of the kind of life that he is leading, that he is encouraging us to lead, bringing us into, helping us to break down our barriers, helping us to go beyond the limitations that we have as individuals and we have as a society as well. Jesus' way is a contemplative way. We don't see that initially when we read the, the scriptures. We're not taught that by the Western church. The Catholic church is the only church that has continued with the contemplative thread, but even there you won't necessarily get it in any parish that you go into. It's there. Thank God. And Thomas Merton was the one who started to bring it back in our country 60 years ago. But Jesus' way is a contemplative way. And when we look at him from a, a Jewish point of view, a Hebrew point of view, when we look at his message and his words through that lens, through that context, through that language, you can see it in spades. You can see it in the way he prays. You can see it in the way that he teaches, always pointing toward mystery, always pointing toward paradox, unresolved, always encouraging everyone to lay down everything that they're defended with, lay down everything that we use to survive and the things that we rely on to be able to control our environment and move into this other space, this other kind of place. If you're not familiar with contemplation, if you're not familiar with contemplative practice or spirituality, it's approaching God not through the intellect, but through pure presence, through pure experience. To be able to step away from the mind, that voice that talks to you in your head, through meditation, through mindfulness, and other types of activities, but mostly through a worldview and just a way of looking at life. Because when you think about it, it's our mind that separates. It's our mind that compares and contrasts and creates edges and backgrounds, stores all this stuff, puts them into pigeonholes in this filing system in our heads, for quick retrieval when we need it. That's how we survive. That's an evolutionary advantage for us. But when Jesus says, don't judge, what he's basically saying is, step away from that whole mode of processing life, that whole way of approaching life, and balance it. It's not that we don't do that anymore. We have to do that for as long as we're drawing breath. But balance it with a non-dual process. That's what duality is. It's separating things into separate components that are usually in competition or in some sort of adversarial relationship with each other. But to see things as one, to see things unitively. And the only way we can do this is when we go beyond our thought processes. And so what contemplation is about is the practice of learning how to do that, how to do it repeatedly, how to do it reliably, and how to do it so that it eventually gets down into muscle memory so that we don't even have to think about it. And we can freely code shift. We can freely flow back and forth between processing the physical world and seeing the spiritual unseen world in the midst of it all at the same time. 
This is what Jesus calls kingdom, this quality of life, when we start to make these balances happen in our lives. So last week we were talking about going beyond. Going beyond what? Going beyond basically everything. You know, in the program we say, you know, it's easy in recovery. You only have to change one thing. Everything, right? Going beyond what? Well, basically going beyond everything. Everything that you are holding on to. Everything that you think you know. But specifically, we talked about going beyond obedience, going beyond certainty, and going beyond belief. What are we talking about there? Well, going beyond legalism. Going beyond this idea that the law is somehow going to save us if we just obey it perfectly enough. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how you fulfill the law, just by obeying the code of the law. It's much more than that. We need to go all the way beyond that to pure presence, to be able to discern what love would require or demand in any certain situation. To have the the permission and the courage to break the code of the law if it's required in order to fulfill the intent of the law and to deliver what love demands. To go beyond certainty. We talked about all human neuroses having their genesis, their beginning, in an intolerance for uncertainty. Let's face it, life is uncertain. There's certain questions that are never going to be answered in this life. Can you deal with that? Or are you obsessively going to be trying to find answers or to pretend that certain answers are true? To set yourself up as certain and everybody else is wrong. Can we get beyond that? Can we make friends with uncertainty and realize this is life? It's a mystery. That's what makes it interesting. How long did you play tic-tac-toe as a kid before it got boring? Because it didn't have any mystery in it. How long would you play any game? You know, that's what I hear about golf. It's just hard enough, right? Just, just hard enough. Just keeps a little bit of the mystery going. Life without mystery, without paradox, without the unknown would be boring in no time at all. Can you get beyond that? Can you make friends with it? Can you actually celebrate the mysteries of life and thrive in the unknowing? And belief, very much aligned to that. Our theological beliefs, our doctrinal beliefs, the ones that we think save us if we can just hang on. All three of these are related, obedience, certainty, and belief. But can we go beyond belief? Maybe that's a little bit harder because we are so attached to our beliefs as being the one way that God will approve of us. But Jesus says we have to start to understand that we are already approved by God. We are already loved by God because we're here breathing and for no other reason. We're not going to make him like us because we believe the right thing, do the right thing, or are certain of the right thing. Jesus is trying to get us to move beyond all of these, to go beyond. And of course, it's not an either or. It's always both and. We're talking about balancing here. We're talking about balancing intellect and intuition. We're talking about balancing rational thought and mystery. And maybe most importantly, we're talking about balancing now and not yet. Because so often when people hear about contemplation, they hear about accepting things as they are and yet still living with hope and gratitude. Well, aren't we supposed to work for things and work for change and see the injustices and the things that are wrong and try to fix them? Absolutely. Of course we are. We wouldn't be human if we weren't. We wouldn't have purpose if we weren't trying to do that. 
But even as we work and strive for those things in the future that we're trying to affect, whether it's in our personal lives, in our business, in our causes, in our ministry, we will never do that to the expense of the present moment. We will never live so in the future, in the outcome, that we can't just let this moment be enough for us and find those moments of complete fulfillment and realize this is a perfect moment and this is how we are perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, by being perfectly present. Because we're going to make mistakes and there's no way around that. But to be perfectly present to the moment is as close to God as we can ever, ever get. Last week, I ended with a poem by the the Sufi mystic Rumi. And uh, I don't know if that was a sticking point for some of you because I'll bring in poetry and teachings and sayings from other traditions because I believe that they can illuminate our tradition. It's not that we're going to change traditions. I'm going to be following Jesus until I take my last breath. But sometimes we're so used to the sayings of Jesus and the scripture as we've read it all our lives that we can't see it for what it is anymore. And another tradition can say the same thing in a different way and it just smacks us upside the head exactly the way Jesus' words did to his first hearers. They've just lost that capacity after all this time. And so Rumi is a Muslim. He was actually born in what is now Afghanistan in I think 1207. Anyway, he's 13th century and he died in what is now Turkey, and he was Persian, and his first language was Farsi, Persian language, and he wrote his poetry in Farsi for the most point, for the most part. And just to make sure that we understand how foreign he is, his actual name was Jalal ad-Din Muhammad Rumi, and Rumi just means Roman because that last name is what is called the Nazba, the Nizba, which is the the delegation of place, or just the description of place. He grew up in what is now Turkey, that Anatolian peninsula, which is part of Rome, and so Rumi, Rome. He's a Muslim. He's a a Sufi mystic. And if that is something that we need to go beyond as well, to be able to listen to a Muslim as illuminating the words of Jesus, then that is something we also need to go beyond. Why? Because if there really is just one God, as we say there is, then there is also one truth, and there is also one love. And the more that we get one with God, the more that we should be able to see and discern that truth wherever it's coming from, even if it's coming from another tradition. Just because it comes from another tradition doesn't make it untrue. If it's aligned with the one truth. And each and every one of us, all we can do is approach this one truth, this one God. But we're going to do it in different ways. But this particular poem that I read last week so beautifully encapsulates and tries to describe in ways that point but don't limit, as only poetry can really do, with the metaphor and the imagery. I wanted to start with it this morning. But I wanted to take more time with it because I think if we can look at what he is putting down, we can much more be able to understand what this way of Jesus is. 
Why Jesus says there is only one way to the Father. I am that way. The way I am living. The way I am connecting with my Father. This is the way. We're trying to understand that because it really is so foreign to us as modern Westerners who are so in love with our minds, in love with rational thought, in love with scientific principle. Can we really step aside from that and embrace something as mysterious, as full of paradox, as Jesus is suggesting? Let's take a look at this. John's not going to be able to put it up on the screens, but if you have the inserts, it's there so you can follow along, and that might make it a little easier for you. I'm just going to read the poem at first, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. This is called A Great Wagon, is the name of the poem, and we're only reading the first half of it. When I see your face, the stones start spinning. You appear, all studying wanders. I lose my place. Water turns pearly. Fire dies down and doesn't destroy. In your presence, I don't want what I thought I wanted. Those three little hanging lamps. Inside your face, the ancient manuscripts seem like rusty mirrors. You breathe. New shapes appear. And the music of a desire as widespread as spring begins to move like a great wagon. Drive slowly. Some of us walking alongside are lame. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase, each other, doesn't make any sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Beautiful words, yeah? What the heck is he talking about, yeah? Was it making a kind of sense to you? Or did it just kind of flow up and over and around? I want to back up a little bit and at least take it line by line because there is so much here that describes what we're talking about when we're talking about the contemplative journey and contemplative practice. When I see your face, the stones start spinning. Your face, whose face are we talking about here? Well, the second half of the poem sounds more like it's another human being because there is imagery to that kind of connection. But even so, it's obvious what he's talking about here is a transcendent experience. Even if it's with another human being, it is such a connection as to bring in what we call God. But we can read this just as easily as a face-to-face encounter with God's spirit. Direct presence to direct presence. And when that happens, the stones start spinning. What's he talking about? It's like gravity itself. All of the physical laws just relax. 
They really don't have a hold anymore. The physics of things don't apply. The way that we normally process life is stood on its head, and the stones are spinning. You appear, all studying wanders, and I lose my place. I love that. The intellect, our rational thought processes, running to our books to get certain answers, all of that just kind of is blown out at, the, at, at this time. We lose our place. There's that in-loveness kind of feeling, lack of boundaries, feeling out of time. But the usual rules of rational thought, the usual ways we button everything down and feel like we're in some kind of control, just kind of goes away. It's like having one of those senior moments that we have. Just kind of forget what we're doing and why we're there, right? And the water turns pearly. And now that these images, where do images like this come from? It only comes from experience. To have experienced that sense. What's water? Water is clear. You can see through it. It's all that idea of the, of the clear becoming opaque. That certainty that we thought we had fades back into mystery, fades back into unknowingness. We're not so sure anymore what we were sure of just a moment ago in the fact of this presence. Fire dies down and doesn't destroy. Fire is something that is hot. Fire is something that is, that is deadly. Fire is something that we fear, right? But the fire dies down, and it doesn't destroy. Our fears of destruction, our fears of punishment, our fears of whatever it happens to be, just start to fade. And we realize that there's nothing here that can harm us. There's nothing here that destroys us. All of that just goes away. The certainty becomes uncertain, and yet there's no fear in that. It doesn't destroy. It, it reminded me of Moses in the burning bush, right? He finds this bush, it's burning, but it's not being consumed, it's not being destroyed. And this is how he knows that there's something here, there's something sacred. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, the Lord tells him. This can't harm you, but it's got the same intensity. Inside your face, the ancient manuscripts. Oh, in your presence, I don't want what I thought I wanted. <laughs> there is an obvious one, right? Our desire is turned on its head. This, this idea of reprioritizing everything that we thought, the illusions of what we thought we wanted and what they thought we thought they would bring us, those are exposed as the illusions that they are. Those three hanging lamps, not exactly sure what he means by those, but what I took it to mean was just material things. Those things that we think we wanted so much, you know, kind of reminded me of Steve Martin and the jerk, you know. I don't need you. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. Well, I need this. Just this lamp. That's all I need. You know, if you can remember that scene. I know some of you, forget it. But this idea that all those things, all those sparkly things that we thought we wanted, suddenly they just don't matter anymore. You know, the other thing about the three lamps and number three, they match the number of temptations that Jesus had to face in the wilderness turning the stones into bread that Henry Nouwen so brilliantly said was about relevance, right? Bowing down to the devil so that you could take control of all the kingdoms of the earth, our need for power, our desire for power, and to throw yourself down from the parapet of the temple and be borne up by angels before you hit the ground to the adoring fans that are there in the courtyard, the need to be spectacular, 
So the need for relevance, the need for power, the need for attention, those three, those desires just kind of fade. What I thought I wanted, I don't really want anymore. I see them exposed for the illusions that they are. Inside your face, the ancient manuscripts seem like rusty mirrors. Our theology, our religion, our doctrine, our practice, all those intellectual pursuits, all of those are just found wanting. They don't bring us what we thought that they would bring us. They're not bringing us anything that is just paling in comparison to the sheer presence that we're experiencing in a moment like this. You breathe, new shapes appear. Transformation. Revelation, right? See, I am making all things new. That's God's job description. Making all things new, transforming them from one thing to another. New shapes are appearing. Seeing the world in a new way. Even same shapes look new in this new vision that we're getting. And the music of a desire as widespread as spring begins to move like a great wagon. We're suddenly filled with new desires, new values, new life that feels like spring. It feels like the return of life after a long winter, after a long time in the wilderness. But drive slowly. (laughs) Some of us walking alongside are lame because it's a process. It's going to take some time here. This is not an instant event. Because we have this transcendent experience, suddenly everything is going to change forevermore for the rest of our lives. We tend to think that way. We tend to think that salvation is is an event, that healing sometimes is an event, that transformation is an event. But it's really this process. It's a process of coming back over and over again, and it takes time. And each of us are going to be at our own pace as we're working through this. Some of us are lame. Some of us are going to take a little longer than others. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty, moving out into this unknown of this new world. We can become frightened. We wake up empty and frightened, but don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. I love that. As we get frightened, as we move out into the unknown, as we realize that the safety net has been pulled away that we thought we had, and we want to run back to the old familiar ideas, we want to run back to the illusion of control that we thought we had, he says, don't open the door to the study. Take down a musical instrument. What is music? But something that only exists in the moment as vibrations are ringing in the air. It doesn't exist anywhere else. That's it. It's right here, it's right now, and it's creative. It's absorbing, immersive. It takes us out of rational thought, takes us into a whole different space. Don't go back to those old ways because you got frightened. Persist, continue on, keep pushing into that unknown. Everything will change. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. This made me think of Brother Lawrence. Remember Brother Lawrence that we talked about so many times? He was the cook in his uh, abbey, and he realized that God was just as present in the kitchen, even though he really didn't want to be there at first when he was assigned the job. But he said, we think that we have to come at all these fancy ways, these formal ways to come at God. He said, it's not so. All we have to do is do what we do every day, all day long, but do it for the sake of God. Do it with the understanding and the awareness of God's presence and everything changes. 
Let the beauty we love be what we do. We don't have to force the sacred upon our moments. All we have to do is be present to our moments and we'll realize that they are sacred. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And then out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. One of the most famous lines of Rumi. You'll see that on bumper stickers and everywhere it's going to be quoted. And what's he talking about, of course? This beyondness that we were talking about. That sacred space, this sacred unity we're talking about is beyond law, beyond morality, our ideas of morality and ethics anyway. It's beyond duty. It's beyond what we understand as virtue. Those things have limits. Those things have cultural underpinnings. But to really move where Jesus is going, it takes us beyond those ideas, beyond those illusions of certainty. We must break through. We must see beyond those kind of dualities into the unity that lies beyond. Because when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. He's saying in that space, in that place beyond these ideas, beyond just thinking, all of the words that we would use to describe anything lose their meaning. These things can't be expressed. Remember when Paul went to the third heaven, was translated to the third heaven, he says he was not allowed to talk about what was up there. That's just a way of saying there's no way to talk about it. How can you express something that is inexpressible? How do you express something that exists outside of the kind of rational thought that would produce the words to try to express it? You can't do it. This is what he's talking about here. Even the phrase each other, the boundaries that we set up, I am me and you are you, all of that starts to lose meaning in this kind of space, in that blur of the dance that we talked about, becoming one in the motion in the velocity. It just dissolves that sense of otherness. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. This is exactly what he's talking about, that each other doesn't make any sense in his connection with the Father. I only do what the Father tells me to. I don't do anything of my own initi initiative because he and the Father are one. That idea of will is blurred into one. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you when we're awakened, when we're aware to the kind of state that he's talking about here, when we arrive at this kind of moment of presence, everything is a teacher. I've said a hundred times, when the student is ready, ready, the teacher appears, right? But the truth of the matter is that everything is a teacher, but only when the student is ready. We've been taught all our lives. How many times did we agree to be taught? But when our awareness catches up to us in this kind of fashion, when we are this present and this aware, then just the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell us. Don't go back to sleep. Don't lose this awareness that you have gained. Keep practicing it. Keep coming back to it. You must ask for what you really want. Desire is the engine for the work that needs to be done in order for us to attain the awareness in the first place can't do it unless we practice it, unless we create a structure and we're disciplined to it. We would like to think it's all inspirational. We would like to think God just downloads it to us. We pray that way. God, please, just grant me. God says, I already have. I've already given you everything that I could possibly give. 
since the beginning of time. It's all there laid out for you. Are you willing to do what it takes to be able to be aware of that, to recognize it, and to bring it down into muscle memory so it's there for you when things get difficult? When it's this hot in Menifee? Is it there for you? (laughs) This is the question. You must ask for what you really want with action. Not with words. This isn't passive. This is all active. Our desire moves us to do the things that are asking for what we really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. We've been talking in here about liminal space, which is the threshold, which is the door sill he's talking about. The people he's talking about have found the, w- the way, the ability to be able to balance these two worlds, the seen and the physical world and the unseen and the mysterious world, and they can move freely back and forth. They're balancing the now and the not yet. They're balancing the intellect and the intuition, right? They're balancing these things. They're even balancing law and compassion. They're balancing everything. They're moving back and forth seamlessly, and the door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. This poem is amazing to me in that it so describes all of the experiences that one has when they move into contemplative practice, when you move into kind of the prayer that Jesus is talking about that is wordless and aimed simply at attaining pure presence with God. As I said, who chooses words like this? Someone who's been across that door sill, of course. Someone who has experienced this enough to at least have the images to try to point again at expressing the whole of this journey. Metaphorically, of course. And especially in a way that doesn't limit us to think that we can understand the journey intellectually. Because as soon as we think that, the journey ends. Our willingness to let go of the concepts in the face of the pure presence and point toward the experience is exactly what Jesus is doing all the time. And it's all about awareness. Everything here is about awareness. Building up your awareness. Allowing your awareness to catch up to you in real time. Not being aware of things that you did years ago or weeks ago or even just minutes ago, but in the moment itself, have the awareness to say, ah, here I am with a choice to make that can either leave this person better than I found him or her or not. A choice to enter into this moment and be fully immersed in it or to stand outside and wish for something better. A chance to balance now and not yet or not. Awareness is key. Awareness is everything. Doing the work that it takes to build it up and letting it catch up and then practicing it over and over again so that we can move across that door sill, balancing our duality with the physical life, with the unity of the unseen life, and then keep practicing not going back to sleep, which is really easy to do. We do it all the time. How do you know? I'm sure you've had times where you felt more connected, closer to God, that you felt that you were on a beam more than others. And if you really look at the times that you felt that way, felt more connected, 
you probably had a practice in place you were doing. Maybe you were getting up every morning and reading from a devotional. Maybe you were going to church. Maybe you had some kind of meditation. Maybe you had some kind of mindfulness. But in some way you were doing something and then you felt this closeness. And then something comes along and those rituals, those structures start to fall away. And then we feel something different. How do we know when we have gone back to sleep? How do we know when we've lost it? Well, we can look at the reactions that we have to going back to sleep. Think about anger. Think about frustration, exhaustion, lethargy, anxiety, that feeling of being burned out, disillusionment, depression, cynicism, just that belief that nobody acts for pure motives anymore. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody is working at something. How about envy? They got it better than I do. I never get any breaks. Resentment, despair. All of these are the children of fear. Fear is the key. Because when we've gone back to sleep, our fears return. And we don't necessarily recognize it as fear because that's way down deep. What we feel are the children of fear. All those negative emotions, all those negative motivations that will crowd back in again when we've lost that connection that is so critical. Now, what's the cure? How do we get back? How do we get there in the first place if we've never been there at all? How do we do that? John tells us at 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. And I just want to read that little section because it leads right up to our signature verse at John 4, 19. But if you're there at 1 John 4, 18 and 19, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. You know, if, ever, if all of us as Christians would just look at our Christianity, look at our relationship with Jesus through the second half of 1 John 4, it is so clear here. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. There's no punishment in God. That's what John is telling us. What are we afraid of? If we're walking around fearing punishment, then we're not perfected in love because perfect love is the only thing powerful enough to cast out the fear. We love because he first loved us. That's the genesis of it. God first loved us. We got that. How could we go wrong? What more do we need, right? Perfect love casts out fear. How? How does it do that? What does that even mean? Perfect love casts out fear. Well, if we understand love as Thomas Merton understood it, that love is identification with the beloved. It's not a feeling and it's not just behavior. That flows from a sense of connection with the beloved. When we see the other as an extension of ourselves, where that line is blurred, be blurred between where we end and they begin, like that optical mix-up, mash-up, right, of the, of the circle dance, then everything we do is if, as if we do it to ourselves. And the feeling that comes from that can even be affection for someone that we initially didn't care for all that much. But here's the idea. Love is identification with the beloved. Seeing that oneness beyond the each otherness. When the phrase each other doesn't make any sense anymore. 
and we start to see everyone as connected. Once you've seen that connection, once you've experienced that kind of oneness, the fear starts to flee from you like cockroaches in the light. Right? Turn on the lights. Have you ever been in love? Come on. Ever been stupid in love? Really stupid in love? Done stupid things? All the things that all your friends are warning you about? What in the world are you doing? But you did them anyway, right? Why'd you do them? Because you didn't feel any fear. That oneness, that absolute connection, that dropping of all your boundaries and all of your defenses feels so good, so freeing. You feel like you're indestructible, that you could go on forever. And throwing your money around like water or doing the things that you may have been doing at that time just feels like the natural thing to do. And nobody can tell you different, right? There's no fear in that kind of unity, that kind of oneness. But then what happens? Well, then the hurts come. Then the betrayal comes. Then you start to realize that you don't have any money anymore because you gave it all away. And then you start to question that unity in the first place. It's kind of like Peter stepping out of the boat, right? Oh, you're walking on the water, Lord. I want to do that too. I can do that. And he steps out of the boat and he's fine for a few steps. But then it's like, what in the world am I doing out here? And then the fear starts to return and he starts to sink. That's going back to sleep. That's what we're talking about here. The fear returns. We start sinking again. And now, this is a bit of an imperfect analogy because being in love, stupid in love like we're talking about, is all about the release of all these neurochemicals and hormones and all of that stuff. And that can't last in a human being. That has its lifespan and it will eventually go away. But even in the imperfection of the analogy, think about it. Because even in contemplative awareness, this, this realization of this oneness and this unity of God's love, it can be lost in much the same way. It's when the hurts start to pile up. It's when the traumas keep coming that somehow we believe we are going to become immune from now that we have found this kind of connection with God. The loss of discipline that follows the hurts and the traumas. We stop doing the things that we used to do. It becomes a row of dominoes falling it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We start to lose the discipline. We lose the practice. Sometimes it's just our health or our age that starts to chip away at our ability to do things that we used to do. And we go back to sleep. And then we start feeling the children of that fear that comes back as we lose the connection that we thought we had. That mystery, the unknown, the uncertainty that we celebrated as adventure when we were in love, when we were connected with God in this way, becomes fearful to us again. And in those moments of real connection, though, we think we'll never feel alone again. Silly wabbit. It's going to come back. Of course it is. That's we, just being human beings. It's an oscillation back and forth. Learning to deal with the oscillation and balance that is also part of what's going on here. I had a friend, I have a friend, really good friend. We are, he, he lives up in Washington State. We're, we're Zooming once a month now on Friday mornings, and so I get to talk to him for an hour and we connect. And uh, it's, it's been wonderful connecting with him after a few years not connecting. But he forwarded an article to me. We talked on Friday, and the next day he forwarded an article to me that was, uh, the title was The Cure for Exhaustion. And uh, 
and, and really it meant the spiritual cure for exhaustion. The spiritual cure for physical exhaustion, let's put it that way, okay? And it pointed back to Elijah, who is one of my favorite figures in the Bible. And uh, the passage that was being used was from 1 Kings 19. Uh, and we've read that several times in here, and for good reason. And that's the beauty of Scripture, that every time you read it, you can glean something different. Every time you read it, you're just turning it and seeing a different facet. And this brought out a little bit different facet, and I want to share that with you. Um, the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel is uh, what's happening at uh, 1 Kings um, 19 and 18. And the story is that uh, Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of, of, of Israel, which is a northern kingdom, hey, they've gone off the rails. Now, Jezebel was a foreign woman that, that the king married, and she brought all her foreign gods and ideas of, of religion and converted the king. And so they have imposed that upon all of Israel. And so all of these foreign altars are going up and all these foreign practices. And, and of course, God is very displeased, and he sends Elijah to try to talk to them, and they won't do it, and, and so on, and so on, and so on. Well, the, the whole thing comes to a crescendo at Mount Carmel where um, Elijah sets up a test, kind of a duel between him and the prophets of Baal, which is the, the main Mesopotamian god that Jezebel's people uh, were adhering to. And so they go up to Mount Carmel and they set up an altar and they have two oxen and each one gets an oxen. The prophets of Baal go first and just by, by side note, there's 450 of them and only one of Elijah because Jezebel's basically killed all the other prophets of Yahweh. And so the idea is, okay, put the ox on, but don't light any fire and tell your God, call your God to, to consume with fire the uh, sacrifice that's being offered. And so they start early in the morning and they go past noon and they're screaming and yelling and cutting themselves and doing all these crazy things. And Elijah's over on the sidelines mocking them and saying, hey, maybe yell a little bit louder. Maybe your God is asleep or on a journey. Can't hear you right now. And they go for it. Nothing happens. So he resets the altar on the other side and he puts his ox on it. He um, digs a trench around the altar. He has people bring cisterns of water and pour it on three times, just dousing the whole thing with water. And then for one short prayer, the fire from God comes down and not only burns the sacrifice, but burns the altar, licks up all the water, and the people go, oh, of course, you know. And then right after that, there's been a three-year drought that has been the punishment for the apostasy of the king and the queen and the, and the country. And uh, Elijah calls an end to that, or at least recognizes the end of that drought. And this huge storm comes, and the water and the rain falls. So at this peak experience in Elijah's life, right, you would think, ah, he's arrived. Everything is going to go really well from here on out. And the king and queen are going to see who, who, which God is the real God. Well, guess what happens right here at 1 Kings 19.1? Let's read that. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, which he did right after they lost. Took them all down to the river and killed them all. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, she puts a hit on him. And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree 
And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. What's going on here? See the trauma, the hurt, the exhaustion, the reality had set in for Elijah that after all he'd done, after all these signs, these great signs that God had provided, the fire and the water, the rain, after three years of drought, wasn't changing anything. Jezebel was still raging, calling for his death, and creating a despair and a sense of failure in him. This is my interpretation, but I can imagine. You do all that, and all you get is a death sentence? All you get is hit squads roaming the countryside looking for you? He did not change Israel's direction, which was his mandate from God. Actually, his mandate from God was to tell the truth. It was up to the people to decide what they were going to do with it. But it looks like Elijah's taking this a little personally. Even God's signs are not enough. So what does he do? He runs and hides and goes back to sleep. Literally goes back to sleep. How often have you done that yourselves? How often have you wanted to? Just go back to sleep, pull the covers over your head, turn off the phone, and just not deal with it all. There was a sign, I think it's upstairs, that says, I can't adult today. I kind of like that. That's that feeling. That's where he's going through right now. I can't adult today. I can't do this. I'm just going to go back to sleep. But then the angel comes. Wake up. Eat something. Here it is, right here. In other words, wake up and go back to the practices that you were practicing before. Go back to what connected you before. Go back to the self-care and the things that you need to do to put yourself back together, man. There's still things to do. And so he does momentarily, and then what? He goes back to sleep again. Wake up. The angel returns. You need to reconnect because this journey is too great for you. You need to reconnect. And it's at this point that he actually gets up and his suffering and his loss, and it's a loss of his imagined identity as a prophet, right? As a prophet of God, what he could do as a prophet. It's that loss of being a spectacular prophet of God. That suffering leads him back to love. As we've said, suffering always does. To be in love with even God there is going to be losses in life that are going to create great suffering. But if we persist in that suffering, if we keep waking back up after we go back to sleep, we can be led back to love. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah. Picking up the story at verse 9, Then he came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And so 
He said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. Literally a still, small voice in the Hebrew. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. The cave. See, Elijah's view, his way of looking, had now been altered and changed. He had stopped looking for God in spectacular ways, stopped looking for his service and connection with God in spectacular signs. He has learned to see and to hear God in seeming nothingness, in this still, small voice. His awareness had become heightened to be able to see God and God's unity everywhere and not just where he expected it to be. In this article, The Cure for Exhaustion, you want to know what it is? Come on, tell me you don't. He said, the cure for exhaustion is not rest. The cure for exhaustion is wholeheartedness. Now, what's wholeheartedness? We use it, but do we really know what it means? Well, just from the dictionary, it means completely and sincerely devoted, determined, enthusiastic, committed, and free from any reserve or hesitation. That's being wholehearted. In other words, free from fear. When you are free from fear, you can afford to be wholehearted. You can afford to be that committed without any reserve or hesitation. And if you're free from fear, then that means that you are aware of and one with the perfect love that God is. It's the only way it works. Perfect love casts out fear. Without the fear, we can be wholehearted. If we're wholehearted, we're not exhausted anymore. We're not asleep anymore. The cure for exhaustion, for anger, depression, anxiety, burnout, that whole laundry list that we talked about as the children of fear is to become aware enough to perceive and to discern God's presence in the smallest of things where we don't expect him to be, where we live most of our lives, right? In the seemingly mundane routines of life, like Brother Lawrence said, can we see God there to wake up inside our waking life like a dreamer wakes up out of a fearful dream, out of a nightmare? Wake up. See what's right in front of you. See how it cures your exhaustion by making you wholeheartedly one with God. But this waking up takes time. It starts with the desire, the asking for what we want by taking action to actually move in new directions. But then drive the wagon slowly, right? Some of us are lame. Some of us are going to have a harder time letting go of our sacred cows, the things that we hold on to for certainty, for security. We become frightened. We run back to our books, run back to our familiar old ways. We try to play it safe again. We try to keep everything at an intellectual arm's length instead of just making music in the air and allowing ourselves to flow with abandon like children do. In other words, we go back to sleep when we get frightened. And that's the process. 
the oscillation that we talked about. Don't worry about it. That's the way it is. Just keep waking back up. Don't worry about how many times you fall asleep. Worry about and think about how quickly you can wake back up. Keep pushing at the things that offend you. Keep pushing through the things that outrage you, intimidate you, until you can finally find yourself in a field out beyond right doing, wrong doing, ideas of right doing and wrong doing. Because when you lay down in that grass, you will experience something that will change everything. And then, don't go back to sleep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for including in our scriptures the failings of our heroes that show us the true shape of the journey. That it isn't the one thing, the heroic thing that we imagine it to be, but that heroism really is in being completed by the journey, whatever the journey takes, into overcoming our failings and our fears, to wake back up, all those things. Thank you for showing us that that's there in every single one of us, no matter how much we may want to idolize. Thank you for having everything in place to take us through those difficulties. Stoke in us the desire for more. Stoke in us the desire to be so connected to you that we lose ourselves in the process and that in losing ourselves, we actually fulfill why we're here. Help us to get the first glimpses of the concept that will stoke the desire, that will motivate the action, that will bring us to you in a new way. Father, we thank you. Love, love your love and your consistency. Never let us forget. It's only because you loved us first that we can love after. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.